0: We were working on an episode about the housing crisis during the pandemic. But a couple of weeks ago, Crackdown lost another member of our editorial board, Dave Murray. We can't all get together to mourn him right now, to remember him and to tell stories, like we did with Sharice last year. I know we'll get to do it eventually, when the quarantine lifts. But until then, we'll do it here. I'm Garth Mullins, this is Crackdown. Episode 16, Goodbye Dave. Dave Murray was a veteran drug user activist. He was a mentor to the next generation of organizers like me. He's pretty much the reason why there's a prescription heroin program in Vancouver today. And he was our friend. Dave was an intellectual, with taped up glasses and a newspaper tucked under his arm. But he was also bold as hell. He helped us launch this podcast. In fact, Dave was here even before we had a name. He was a soft-spoken guy, and he made sure Crackdown got off on the right foot. Dave used heroin for decades, He was part of these two prescription heroin trials here in Vancouver. Their names became so familiar, they were like people we knew, Naomi and Salome. Naomi was the North American Opiate Medication Initiative and Salome was the study to assess long-term opioid medication effectiveness. And they found what you'd figured they'd find. Prescription heroin worked great, but when the studies were done, people were just kicked back to the street, grinding for dope as usual. So Dave organized with other patients these studies. He was part of a legal challenge to force government to let them keep getting prescribed heroin even when the studies were over. Dave broke a path that will, one day, mean everyone wired to down can get prescription heroin. More recently, Dave's been sick. He was heartbroken to lose his brother in 2018 to overdose. I spoke with Dean Wilson of our editorial board and Anne Livingston. Both close friends of Dave. You know, I I know that um Dave died of um I, I don't think you call it natural causes, but not of COVID and not of an overdose. And I, I don't want to share his private details on the on the podcast. But last year his brother Les, who who we all also knew, um died of overdose. And I think that hit Dave pretty hard. I'll tell
1: you. I'll tell you. I told this to
0: somebody the other day.
1: I'm the guy who told him that his brother died. And the minute I told Dave that his brother was gone, Dave started melting. And he melted every day until the last day he was on Earth. in him we were the brothers who were sort of the black sheep and we both felt that he said he first thing he said to me was the brother died and I said I said the exact same thing when my brother died
2: the fentanyl uh, uh, scare or whatever we, we're calling it now the fentanyl crisis so there is 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 a really
0: really devastated this community. This is Dave Murray in 2017.
2: Many, many people have died. Everybody knows somebody who's died out there. We used to put pictures on the wall at Van of the people that weren't, you know, we lost. And it's hard to keep up with it nowadays.
0: You, you texted me that you guys were on Death Watch, I think you called it.
3: Yeah, yeah, you just try and sit. And, you know, Susan played some music. And
0: What did you guys, what did she play?
3: Whatever she keeps. I don't know, just old stuff, Bob Dylan stuff, and, you know.
0: I remember, I think it was the, you and me and Dave and Les were in a car going somewhere. And um, Les was driving and dave was like kind of piloting the radio i think or something like he was telling us he was either tuning the radio or telling us what song, what where he wanted it to be tuned or something like he had he was he was pretty quiet but he had definite ideas about what music should be on in the car
3: <laughs> and where that fog horn i will be coming home he did it. i was just always a bit taken back cuz he He'd pull up and pick me up and off we'd go. The greatest thing was I'd go, "Hey, let's go to mission and see if we can get a needle in mission." And we'd just take the long route around. And he was always right. up for it. <laughs> <laughs> these, these poor public health people, if you went into the public health um, office in, in New West at the time, they'd all just they'd start walking backwards from you. You know what I mean? A needle, and you think. Yeah, you know, public health, right?
0: You know, there's little things that come to your mind, these little things that you, f- you forget. You know, you remember this wise guy with the newspaper and the glasses and stuff. But then I remember at a stimulus conference in Edmonton where we were two years ago, it was, you know, cold. It's Alberta and he didn't bring a coat. You know, and I, I said to him, "Hey, man, do you do you want to borrow this my my coat?" He's like, "No, no, no. You, it'll look like a tent on me or something." You know, and it's just like this little these little weird memories of this kind of, um, yeah, flustered professor kind of moment or something. You know. Yeah, he has he
1: has moments like that quite
0: often. <laughs> is there any is there anything like that that you've been thinking about this week? Any little. Strange moment.
1: Dave and I's really closeness was over heroin. And um, uh, we were both old timers and um, we were both sick and tired of one day, maybe not being as well as we could in the morning and, and, you know, before getting it together. So we made a pact that him and I would phone each other every morning, which we did for about eight years and made sure that both of us were fine to take the day on. And um, sometimes, you know, um, I was into him for a grand. Sometimes he was into me for a couple. It didn't matter. It, we made that deal. And and it sort of cemented our friendship because we always knew that we, we actually had somebody we could rely on. And I, I know that's not a popular story for the outside world, but... To two old junkies, both in their sixties, it meant a lot, and, and and it secured a friendship that, um, you know, <laughs> that that far
3: none. I My favorite Dave moment, the, the weirdest thing I ever saw him do, is we're at the back of Andou. I don't know why we've gone out to the back. I think his cops were in the parking lot in the back of Andou, and that usually gets us. Oh, we better go out there. What? Oh, can we help you with something? So he starts chatting to these VPD guys, but he grabs this big handful of Law Enforcement Against Prohibition leaflets or pamphlets, and he starts to try and recruit these cops to join Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. You can see them lean forward, and yeah, they take the pamphlet, and then he's going, well, you know, it would make policing a lot easier too, eh? And I'm I'm like... I, you know, I just kind of freeze and just think, holy shit, this is a tableau. Because he had a sort of a fearless manner about him, you know. He just, uh, you know, and then if the, he could get them chatting about heroin prescription. or like, You know, that was his methodology. He'd start working on people. And he was willing to do the, not preach to the choir, but to talk to people who had never really thought about it. Anyway, he goes, you guys live in Surrey, don't you? And then they both really looked startled. And he said, just guessing, I think most police live in Surrey. <laughs> 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 I thought they were going to, you know. <laughs> the great thing about hanging out with Dave is you just they're laughing the whole time. I don't know why it is so funny to hang out with him. I just don't quite grasp it. It's hard to describe his humor.
0: I really want to let people know what he was like, you know, and I struggle for the right words. Like, I want people to like, how are how are you going to remember him?
1: Oh, just as my friend, just just as my
2: friend. Free heroin, it <laughs> sounds like a good, good deal to me, you know, uh, free dope three times a day. That was what, what appealed to me at the time. You know, I, I was, uh, I think I was homeless at the time, or I lived in an SRO hotel room. You know, I was very, uh, not good living uh, conditions that I was in.
0: And um, so I jumped at the idea. This is Dave talking about how he first found out about Naomi, the North American Opiate Medication Initiative. The interview was recorded in 2017 by Gordon Caddick and Travis Lupik. Back then, they were working on a documentary about prescription heroin in Vancouver. Did, did you think, like, is this too good to be true? <laughs>
2: uh, no, I, I was kind of aware of, of, of heroin-assisted treatment. and I'd read something about it a couple, once or twice, you know, like uh, that it had been tried and there was an... Uh, uh, Program in Europe. I'd read a bit about Needle Park in, in in Switzerland and the and the and how they how they started a, a treatment program around that. And uh, I was kind of I was I was I was happy to, that it was here. You know they they were they were doing it. You know here and that it would be it would uh, be good for me anyway and probably help others too. What they had done, they had gone to Switzerland and copied the, the Swiss study. You know, they kind of like copied it. It's called the medic- medicalized model where you have to go into a clinic and do this 10-minute wait and then then do your shot, then wait another 10 minutes to be observed, you know, like uh, before you're allowed to leave the premise. You know, it's uh, uh, it's the way they, they, they first tried to do it in in Switzerland. It was called, the, like I said, the
0: medicalized model. I was around when Naomi was just starting up, and I— I couldn't believe it. I was just like, prescription heroin? For, I, like, I was in a state of disbelief about it. What, what did you think at that time? Can you remember? Well, I have a before? very
3: long history with Naomi because I was in a, I think we were in Cleveland, Ohio, at a, the, it, was, it used to be called the North American Harm Reduction Conference.
0: Anne had known about Naomi for years. She was at a conference where the study was being pitched. Originally, the study was supposed to happen in a handful of cities in both the U.S. and Canada.
3: It's going to have Baltimore, Philadelphia, I don't know if New York was on the list, Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver. I think that was maybe the total.
0: But go figure, it didn't happen in the U.S.
3: And this is the year before we started Vandu. So the NAOMI trial, in its infancy where the proposals were being written up and it was being lobbied for, um, was 1997, 1996. Also well, so this was
0: like eight years before anybody got the first prescribed hit.
3: Well, I'll oh. give them an A for persistence.
0: Oh, gee, it was a complicated uh,
2: recruitment. Uh, I believe it was you had to be, uh, tried being in a detox, uh, tried a methadone at least two two or three times and having fail, failed at it. And the the reason they turned me down the first time is because I was, uh, I was, I had only been off methadone for like uh, two months and you had to be off methadone six months. There was a real strict, pretty strict requirement on, on who they wanted.
3: Dave never liked methadone, which is what got him into Naomi. And he had failed at it twice and was able to get the records to show that. And that's how strict Naomi was. They had to have all your records they had to right. see your birth certificate. I mean, this was a thing like with Dave because he was born in Scotland. They wanted all the originals of everything. It was extremely stringent, and many, many people couldn't get on. If you were under 21, if you hadn't failed at methadone twice and were able to prove it, uh, you had to live without a certain number of kilometers of the main and Hastings, on and on and on it went. And um, so it was a very, very slow uptake because... We had succeeded in getting thousands of people on methadone the year before they started recruiting for NAOMI, and you couldn't be on methadone and apply to be part of the NAOMI.
2: I think they had gone to their ethics boards or whatever, and they had a pretty strict requirement of not, you know, uh, not interrupting other uh, treatment in progress, you know, that kind of deal. Where if somebody was on methadone and were doing what they considered quote-unquote well, uh, that they didn't want to remove them from that situation. That was uh, they would have felt that wasn't ethical or it wasn't right to do. The skewed ethics are built into that that uh, whole thing because you know they have this drug that you need, and uh, so they have an absolute power over you in a lot of ways. You know. Half of the people were randomized to oral methadone, and the other half were at injectable. Some people were gonna get dilaudid, some people were gonna get injectable morphine, and half of the people, the control half, I guess they call it, were gonna get oral methadone. You didn't know until the, the day that you went to the clinic. Anyway, I got there that day and they told me you're going to get the, you know, up to three shots a day and, and they titrated you on it. You know, you got a little bit and then a little more and a little more over the f- first three days. And then you, they established a, a safe dose for you that you didn't fall over
0: and knock yourself out, you know. And, uh, and that's, that
2: was it. I did that
0: for, that was for a year. Once people were getting their prescription heroin, things changed. A lot. Many got housing, found work, and connected with family. There were less hassles from the cops and more connection with healthcare services. Dave, too. He didn't have to spend every waking moment just trying to be well. Dave and the participants just wanted medicine. But this wasn't a real clinic. It was an academic trial. The researchers wanted to prove something that Dave already knew to be true. His life was a lot better when he didn't have to grind for money and outrun dope sickness. And after the trial ended... Everyone was afraid of what would happen next. You know, there was a
2: an outlook of of hope around the clinic when when we all started to go there. Was that, hey, this maybe could 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 continue? You know, that it wasn't just going to be for the 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 one year period. You know, that maybe the the powers that be would see the success of the of this program and that. You know, it would be, uh, well, the success of the study and, and turn it into a full-time, you know, program, which was, which was the hope of everybody there, actually, the people who were involved in the program and the people that worked there and, you know, the doctors and people that you, you, were, you were exposed to, you know, like who worked there. Everybody was kind of hoping for the same thing. You know we all knew we all yeah, they made us sign all kinds of inf- papers saying that we understood that it was gonna it was gonna stop you know like uh, at one time but nobody believed it you know <laughs> well we, we believed it but no everybody thought that they wouldn't do that to it you know they, they wouldn't put somebody on a, a drug that was working you know and then snatch it away from you and later on when I, I started the, the Naomi patients to gathering them together, we did tons of research and all that, and found out that it was they didn't do that to people even in in you know like drug studies anywhere in the world where the drug was working for people they didn't take it away from you they, it was they had to keep giving it to people you know it was part of the all the accords that the, the all the countries signed to protect people who were involved in drug studies. We were not treated that way. Well, I, I was kind of like frantic after the program because I didn't, I, you know, the program wasn't going to continue. I didn't want to take methadone. I tried it, and it wasn't. It wasn't. I was back on the street, doing a lot of heroin again. The heroin wasn't working. I was doing a lot of pills, you know, anything to just keep the edge off. Um, I ended up selling everything I owned, and eventually. The first month or two, just ending up the homeless again and completely destitute. Then I went into a, then I tried to kick the drugs, I went into a detox and tried that and I ended up leaving there and I went into a, then I went into another detox, I got out of there and went into a. Uh, treatment center, stayed there for a little while, took off from there. I mean, I I went through a a real rough period after Naomi. So in between Naomi and uh, Salome starting, you know, that was when we organized the the Naomi patients, and it was at the the, the urging of... uh, of Vandu and Livingston and Pivot Legal. And they had told, they had asked me to, you know, try to help find the the patients from Naomi. You know, there might be something we can do to help them, you know, legally or whatever, to try and get, you know, some kind of redress.
3: Dave's not the kind of guy who's going to do that, right? Like, in a way, he'd do it. But I hadn't met him when he was in the Naomi project. And I kept we kept trying to hold Naomi... Um, meetings, if you're on heroin prescription, come to Vandu, we've got a stipend, we have a snack, there's a lawyer there. And we kept one, I wanted to talk to them about this, because I thought that um, they should be able to turn, like, what kind of chump gets a heroin prescription trial in their town, and they're an organizer, and they can't turn that into an actual program. That's how I looked at it. So it was, I would declare defeat on the whole thing. And then, Along comes Dave. He used to be in the program. That means he knows everything. And it turned out he was really smart. I wouldn't have known that. But he's totally willing to come and help me organize all this stuff. So we're going out, and we're doing these very formative meetings of, of uh, drug users in Surrey. And we're doing formative meetings of drug users in Abbotsford. And uh, so he'd pick me up, and off we'd go. But we were going at least twice a month, usually three times a month to Surrey, at least twice a month, usually three times a month to Abbotsford. And that's a lot of driving, yeah. And I was the one who kept saying, you know, I'm pretty sure you guys can sue the government. That's what I kept saying, like, you know, an armchair lawyer. I have no idea, but you know <laughs> how people are.
0: You always sound very confident about your legal advice to me, Anne. <laughs> <laughs> well. So, but you, I guess you convinced him on one of these long car rides to start organizing because. You know he, what
3: he thought? He thought he sure as fuck wasn't going to do it by himself. That's for sure.
0: So we
2: went around. I walked around finding, talking to people. I said, come on up to the van dude on Saturday and, you know, we can have a little get-together and see what's going on. I can give you a stipend, you know, a few bucks for your pocket.
0: Do you remember the the transition of Dave the Patient to Dave the Activist?
2: Yeah, I
1: sort of do. I sort of do. People don't realize that you know, Dave was a really nice guy, but he was a bit of an old curmudgeon. You know what I mean? I don't know if people even know what that means nowadays. But he was like an old—he was an old prick. He really was, just like me. And 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 that's not in a bad way. Mm-hmm. And um and what he started seeing was wrong, and he started saying things about it. That's wrong, and you shouldn't be saying that or doing that. You know what I mean? He really became an old curmudgeon that way, where he wouldn't
3: accept a miss or untruth easily. When we did start the first NPA meeting, he got such a kick out of it. I thought that was the funniest thing to call. So this
0: is the Naomi Patients Association, which coincidentally is the same acronym as the right-wing municipal party in Vancouver, which is the nonpartisan association.
3: Yep. So we're... Um, going to hold the meeting it's going to be on saturdays at Van and it it I it, it might still be at saturdays at vegas mm-hmm. and then um so i baked a cake that's my little thing you know i go Hmm, this is free i'll bake a cake and that and it sort of signifies that if you come to this meeting there's cake and five dollars that's good anyway in they come and we had very few people we just kept saying spread the word spread the word spread the word
2: some of them weren't doing really well. Some of them had really gone downhill a lot and weren't doing weren't, weren't doing well at all. Um, some of them had um, had died and were not uh, here anymore. Um, some of them we just couldn't find. There was only about a hundred of us. I think it was the exact number was 99 uh, people who had received the injectable drug. And I think we ended up finding about 50
3: of them. Ethically, what happened to them at the NPA, they were realizing. They knew they'd been violated, but they didn't want to get too mad because they heard more heroin was coming, and they wanted the heroin to come. So they took a much more sort of, okay, we're not going to block this thing, but we're going to make sure it doesn't fuck with people like this one did. So we went to many meetings
2: we met with them several times, and we asked uh, they would take the Naomi patients, make sure that the people that were in Naomi were were uh, fast tracked onto the uh, the next study, and uh, they had agreed to they agreed to all those uh, things that we asked them for. Of course, at the last minute, they didn't. They said, "No, no, we couldn't do it like that." <laughs> uh, you know, for most of the people that wanted to get in, I think they they, they were they got in. In the second study, there was no uh, oral medication involved. and the Salome study, it was either you got uh, one of two drugs and both were injectable, so it appealed to anybody that was in- injecting, you know. It was... Uh, they either got the injectable Dilata or
0: injectable um, heroin disillomorphine. This time, when the study was over each patient applied for compassionate access to prescription heroin through a special government program.
2: What was called a special access program, which was, I think it was set up in many years ago, maybe in the 50s or 60s, as a kind of end-of-life uh, drug. You know, like where, where drugs that weren't available in Canada could be imported into Canada and used for, you know, people that, were, uh, uh, that needed it that they thought might work as an, on an experimental basis?
3: I'm desperate. I'm clearly going to die. I'm, I'm willing to try this experimental drug, and my reward would be, if it works for me, they don't cut me off of it. Oh, thanks right. for your help, boot. Go die. They just say, um, we'll get compassionate access. And it, it's it got a number of names, so that's what we call it. I think it special access, I don't know, whatever. It just right. means that if you've been um, kind enough and generous enough to offer yourself up to be the subject of a human trial, that at the end of that trial, if the drug that you were given works for you, you stay on it. Well, hell, mm-hmm. that's clear.
2: Health Canada started to give us, uh, agreed to give the, the drug to, to people under the special access program. And one day the health minister decided that that was wrong
0: and she put a stop to it.
3: Ro- that Rona, what's her name?
0: Rona Ambrose, the minister of health under Harper, or one of the ministers. She yeah. gets
3: up and says, "We're not here um, to, you know, get people on heroin." And um, she she says, "All compassionate access exists except for heroin."
2: See, the thing is, the the government that was powered of the Rona Ambrose was the government that didn't recognize drug addiction as a medical issue. it was a whole different ballgame for them. It was a crime issue. That we were criminals uh, for taking drugs, which wasn't based on any kind of fact. It was based on ideology and her morality or whatever, you know. It wasn't based on really anything other than that.
3: But it's stupid. It's a illegal law. You know it right. immediately. You could ask a three-year-old and they tell you, oh, you can't do that to some people and not do it to mm-hmm. other people.
2: And that's when we went into court and and got a temporary injunction.
0: In May of 2014, the Supreme Court of Canada ordered the government to get out of the way. The court said, provide all necessary regulatory approvals, permits, and or exemptions required to secure access to the morphine. Dave and the other study participants had won.
2: You ask anybody at the Salome Clinic there, and they'll they'll just be, they'll be so thankful, they're so thankful that they're in that clinic and that that's kept them alive. Because most of them would say that they would probably be dead today if it wasn't for that. You know, they would have probably picked up a a hit of a drug and and, and OD'd and died if they had been out there. So we are, yeah, we are the luckiest junkies in North America, (laughs) (laughs) that's for sure.
0: You know, I, I realized, too, um, Dave's immediate legacy, just at least in my life, is going to be, um, you know, we, we pushed these government officials to give us expanded prescribing during the COVID-19 epidemic, right? Like, so that you can get, you know, benzos and <clears throat> um, Dilaudid and that sort of stuff, and you know they're they're not committing to let this exist forever. In fact, it's got a sunset date. You know, in September, it's it's going to get turned off unless something happens. And so we're going to be in the same kind of fight that that Dave was. That if something works for people, they shouldn't get cut off. It. You know, and I guess we're going to be, um, you know, relying on a lot of Dave's work about compassionate access and that sort of thing.
3: Yeah, it it'll be. You know, we're going to miss him for this fight for sure.
0: Well, thanks, Anne. Thanks very much.
3: Well, you're welcome. Um,
0: you take care of yourself, eh? Yeah.
3: Bye. See
0: you. Safe journey home, Dave. Take care, buddy. Crackdown is produced on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and tsleil nations. Our editorial board is Simona Marsh, Shelda Castor, Greg Fess, Jeff Loudon, Dean Wilson, Laura Shaver, Al Fowler, Sharice Kiwatin. RIP Sharice, and Dave Murray. Goodbye, Dave. You can read obituaries by Travis Lupick and also by Guy Felicella, Dean Wilson, and Matt Bond. Ann Livingston has created a Facebook page with lots of Dave's speeches. Thanks to Gordon Kadik and Travis Lupik for a tape of Dave gathered in 2017 for a documentary called The Heroin Clinic. All the links to these things are on our webpage. You can support us at patreon.com crackdownpod. Special thank you to our Patreon supporters, new ones and those who've been with us from the start. You help us keep going. Crackdown's senior producer is Sam Fenn, our producers are Alexander Kim and Lisa Hale. Our science advisor is Ryan McNeil, assistant professor and director of harm reduction research at the Yale School of Medicine. I'm Garth Mullins, host, writer, and executive producer. You can follow me on Twitter at Garth Mullins. Original score written, produced by Sam Fenn, James Ash, and I. Our theme song was written by me and Sam with accompaniment by Dave Jens and Ben Appenheimer you also heard a bit of one of Dave's favorite songs, Van Morrison's Into the Mystic. We make this podcast with funds from the Canadian Institutes of Health Research and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, and from our Patreon supporters. We'll be celebrating Dave's life once the quarantine is lifted. Stay safe. Keep six.